Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Bronje. Glad you could join us today. So, I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials are items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No sorry. All right, so, start off here. Uh, unfortunately, with uh, an obituary from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 31st, 2024, Marcy June Stein, December 20, 1928 to January 25th, 2024. Author unknown. Marcy Stein was born December 20th, 1928 and died January 25th, 2024 in Pasadena, California at the remarkable age of 95. This is a testament to a life fully lived. Marcy was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to Peter and Frida Alderman. She was the last of five children, all of whom preceded her in death. The family moved to Los Angeles, California, when Marcy attended high, where Marcy attended high school. In high school, uh, she was introduced by her brother Bernie to a fellow Navy pilot, Harold Stein, was, Mar uh, was Marcy's true uh, one true love. They were married on June 28, 1947, right after she graduated from high school. Marcy and Hal had three daughters, Posse, Libby, now deceased, and Beth, and a son, Peter, 12 years later. Marcy's role of stay-at-home mom was much more than that. She organized the household, ran countless errands, and volunteered at her children's activities, including assisting at the local elementary school, which she would later become a part-time job as a much-beloved kindergarten teacher's aide. She was a Girl Scout leader and a cheering presence to, at all her children's sports events. Marcy and Hal believed that a Jewish upbringing was important to their family life. They joined Temple Judea, where Marcy was a member of the sisterhood. The family regularly attended Sabbath services and High Holy Days, and she baked a homemade challah every Friday. Marcy's giving, welcoming nature was the reason her home became the place where all the kids would gather after high school games. There was always plenty of food, including chocolate and candies. Marcy was known for her sweet tooth and lively conversation. Marcy's favorite activities included knitting, playing mahjong, solving crossword puzzles, growing roses, playing video poker. For years, she made annual trips to Vegas with her daughter, Beth, cultivating friends, and USC football. Marcy was the consummate USC Trojans fan. How was, how was a USC alumnus? and a good portion of their social life centered on tailgate picnics at the Los Angeles Coliseum and trips across the country to watch her team play. In their later years, Marcy and Hal lived in Manhattan Beach, where they enjoyed bicycle rides, brunch dates, and entertaining their grandchildren at the beach. Marcy and Hal were married for 54 years when he passed away in November of 2021. Marcy survived by her two daughters, three sons-in-law, one son, and daughter-in-law, four grandsons, one granddaughter, four beloved great-grandchildren, two nieces, one nephew, one grandniece and nephew, two adored great-grandnieces, and many, many friends. She will be greatly missed by all the people who lived, whose lives she touched. A funeral service is scheduled for 2.30 p.m. on January 31st, 2024 at Mount Sinai Memorial Park and Cemetery. That was Marcy June Stein, December 20, 1928 to January 25th, 2024, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 31st, 2021. 24, that is. On to Israel stories. From the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 21st, 2024, 
Netanyahu rebuffs Biden over Palestinian state. The leader insists on full Israeli control over Gaza. In Tel Aviv, thousands hold protests over hostages. But Julia Frankel, Sami Magdi, and Elena Bekatoros. Jerusalem. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Saturday that he will not compromise on a full Israeli control over Gaza and that this is contrary to a Palestinian state, rejecting President Biden's suggestion that creative solutions could bridge wide gaps between the leader's views on Palestinian statehood. And a sign of the pressures Netanyahu's government faces at home, thousands of Israelis protested in Tel Aviv calling for new elections and others demonstrated outside the Prime Minister's house, joining families of the more than 100 remaining hostages held by Hamas and other militants. They fear that Israel's military activity further endangers hostages' lives. Netanyahu is also under heat to appease members of his right-wing ruling coalition by intensifying the war against Hamas, which governs Gaza while contending with calls for restraint from the United States, its closest ally. Netanyahu posted his statement on social media a day after his first conversation with Biden in nearly a month. Discussing his administration's position Friday, Biden said that there are a number of types of two-state solutions and asked if a two-state solution was impossible with Netanyahu in office. Biden replied, no, it's not. After Netanyahu's statement, a spokesman for Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas called for the United States to go further. It is time for the United States to recognize the state of Palestine, not just talk about a two-state solution, Nabil Abu Rudaneh said in a statement. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said that the refusal to accept the two-state solution for Israelis and Palestinians and the denial of the right to statehood for the Palestinian people are unacceptable. Speaking in Uganda, he said the refusal would indefinitely prolong the conflict. Netanyahu has said Israel must fight until it achieves complete victory and Hamas no longer poses a threat, but has not outlined how this will be accomplished. But a member of Israel's wartime cabinet, former Israeli Army Chief Gadi Eisenkot, has called a ceasefire the only way to secure the release of the hostages, a comment that implied a criticism of Israel's current strategy. Critics have accused Netanyahu of preventing a cabinet-level debate about a post-war scenario for Gaza, alleging Netanyahu was stalling in hopes of avoiding conflict that could potentially break up his right-wing ruling coalition. Netanyahu's office called the claim that he... He was unnecessarily prolonging the war. Utter nonsense. Israel launched its war against Hamas after the militant group's unprecedented October 7 attack that killed about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, in Israel and saw about 250 others taken hostage from the country's south. Health authorities in Hamas-ruled Gaza say Israel's offensive has killed nearly 25,000 Palestinians, most of them women and children. The offensive, one of the most destructive military campaigns in recent history, has pulverized much of the territory and displaced more than 80% of its population of 2.3 million people. An Israeli blockade that allows only a trickle of aid into Gaza has led to widespread hunger and outbreaks of disease, United Nations officials have said. Netanyahu has insisted that the only way to secure the hostages' return is by crushing Hamas through military means. But relatives of the remaining captives have been escalating their campaigns, seeking a deal for the release of their loved ones. 
More than 100 hostages, mostly women and children, were released during a brief November ceasefire in exchange for the release of Palestinian women and minors imprisoned by Israel. Israel has said that more than 130 hostages remain in Gaza, but only about 100 are believed to be alive. The protest outside Netanyahu's home in the coastal town of Caesarea grew, with police pushing a few attendees away, sparking arguments. We can't take it anymore. We've been told to sit quiet, let the government do its job. Well, it's not bringing us any result for the last two months, said Yuval Bar-Om, whose father-in-law, Keith Siegel, is among the hostages. The protest began Friday, when the father of a 28-year-old man held by Hamas began what he called a hunger strike. Eli Shtivi, whose son Idan was among the people kidnapped from a musical festival in southern Israel, pledged to eat only a quarter of a pita a day to show how little food some hostages were reportedly given on some days until the prime minister agreed to meet with him. And the, at the Tel Aviv protest, former hostage Hen Goldstein Almog told the crowd that if we as a society, as a state, don't do everything, I mean everything, to return the abductees, the living and the dead, we have no right to exist as a state and as a society. Dozens of anti-war protesters also gathered in the city, in the Israeli city of Haifa, carrying signs reading "Stop Genocide" and scuffling with police who tried to confiscate the placards. Police made one arrest. As part of its search for the hostages, Israel's military dropped leaflets on the territory's southernmost town of Rafah that asked people to provide information about the captives. The leaflets, with dozens of, uh, with photos of dozens of hostages carried a message suggesting benefits for anyone providing information. You want to return home? Please report if you identified one of them, read the message. Hours later, Al-Mad Al-Amni, a news outlet linked to the Hamas internal security force, warned Palestinians against supplying any information about Israeli soldiers held hostage in Gaza. The war has rippled across the Middle East, with Iranian-backed groups at attacking U.S. and Israeli targets. Fighting between Israel and Hezbollah militants in Lebanon threatens to corrupt into, uh, erupt into all-out war, and Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen are targeting international shipping in the Red Sea despite U.S.-led airstrikes. In Gaza, residents reached by phone after the end of a seven-day communications blackout reported a heavy bombardment and fighting between militants and Israeli troops Saturday morning in and around the southern city of Khan Yunus and the urban refugee camp of Jabalia in the north. Israeli warplanes and shelling hammered areas in, in and east of Khan Yunus with gun battles raging overnight into the early morning in Bani Suhela, a town on the city's outskirts, residents said. The town is one of the hotspots in Israel's military operations in the Khan Yunus area. Halima Abdel Rahman, a woman displaced from northern Gaza who has sheltered in Bani Suhila since November, said Israeli airstrikes hit several buildings in the town over the last couple of days and that bombing was so intense overnight into Saturday. The fighting has forced many families to leave their homes, many of which were reduced to rubble, and Bani Suhila is largely empty, she said. A car was apparently struck by a drone in Rafa, killing four, according to an Associated Press cameraman at a local morgue. Israel's military didn't immediately comment. 
in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Meanwhile, mourners gathered Saturday for the funeral of Tafik Ajak, a 17-year-old American-Palestinian shot and killed a day earlier near the city of Ramallah. The circumstances of the shooting remain unclear, and police said the incident was under investigation. Friends of the teenager and the family had returned to their home village in the West Bank from Harvey, Louisiana, about a year ago. That was Netanyahu rebuffs Biden over Palestinian state by Julia Frankel, Sammy Maggie, and Elena's Becca Torres from the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, January 21st, 2024. Associated Press writers Frankel and Magdi reported from Jerusalem, Becca Toros from the Athens, John Gambrel in Jerusalem, and Najib Jobain and Rafa contributed to this report. Right, here's this one from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, uh, Friday, January 26, 2024. Israel vows to fight Hamas to Gaza-Egypt border. The plan, which aims to halt arms smuggling via tunnels, threatens a 1979 peace accord with Cairo by Sammy Magdi and Melanie Lidman. Cairo. <clears throat> Israel faces a growing risk of damaging its peace with neighboring Egypt as its military pushes the offensive against Hamas farther south in the Gaza Strip. Already, the two sides are in a dispute over a narrow strip of land between Egypt and Gaza. Israeli leaders say that to complete the destruction of Hamas, they must eventually widen their offensive to Gaza's southernmost town, Rafah, and take control of the Philadelphia Corridor, a tiny buffer zone on the border with Egypt that is demilitarized under the two countries' 1979 peace accord. In a news conference last week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Hamas continues to smuggle weapons under the border, a claim Egypt vehemently denies and that the war cannot end until we close this breach referring to the corridor. That brought a sharp warning from Egypt that deploying Israeli troops in the zone known in Egypt as the Salah al-Din Corridor will violate the peace accord. Any Israeli moving in this direction will lead to a serious threat to Egyptian-Israeli relations, Dia Raswan, head of Egypt's state information service, said Monday. Egypt fears that an Israeli attack on Rafah will push a massive wave of Palestinians fleeing across the border into the Sinai Peninsula. More than a million Palestinians, near half, nearly half of Gaza's population of 2.3 million, are crowded into Rafah and its surroundings on the border, most driven there after fleeing Israeli bombardment and ground offensives elsewhere in Gaza. If Israeli troops assault Rafah, they have nowhere to flee. Palestinians have broken through before. In 2008, early in the blockade Im imposed on Gaza by Israel and Egypt after the Hamas takeover, Hamas blew open the border wall. Thousands of people stormed into Egypt. Egypt told the Israelis that before any ground assault on Rafah, Israel must let Palestinians return to, uh, no to northern Gaza. A senior Egyptian military official involved in coordination between the two countries told the Associated Press. He spoke on condition of anonymity to talk about the internal discussions. Israel says it has largely driven Hamas out of northern Gaza, but is likely to resist allowing Palestinians back in the near term. Israel's bombardment and ground assault have reduced much of the north to rubble, leaving many without homes. 
The dispute puts Israel in a bind. If it stops its offensive without taking Rafah, it falls short on its top war goal of crushing Hamas. If its military pushes to the border, it risks undermining its peace deal with Egypt, a foundation of stability in the Mideast for decades and upsetting its closest ally, the United States. Israel and the U.S. are already divided over Gaza's post-war future. The Israeli military is working to create an informal buffer zone about half a mile wide inside Gaza along the border with Israel to prevent militants from attacking nearby communities. The U.S. says it opposes any attempt by Israel to shrink Gaza's territory. Israel vows to expunge the militants from the entire Gaza Strip and has done so by a strategy of systematic destruction at a huge cost in civilian lives. Starting in northern Gaza, it leveled large swaths of the urban landscape, saying it was eliminating Hamas tunnels and infrastructure while battling militants. It is working its way down the territory, doing the same in central Gaza and the southern city of Khan Yunis. Netanyahu has said Israel intends to keep open-ended security control over Gaza to ensure Hamas cannot repeat its October 7 attacks that triggered Israel's assault. He has been vague on what form he would take, but said ensuring control over the Philadelphia corridor is crucial. There are few options how we can close it. We are checking all of them, and we haven't made a decision except for one thing. It must be closed, he said. Egypt warned Israel and the U.S. that any military operations in the zone could tear apart our peace, a second Egyptian official said. We will not tolerate such a move. The official spoke on condition of anonymity because he was not authorized to talk to the press. The corridor is a narrow strip, about 100 yards wide in parts, running the 8.6-mile length of the Gaza inside the border with Egypt. It includes the Rafah crossing into Egypt, Gaza's sole outlet not controlled by Israel. The corridor is part of a larger demilitarized zone along both sides of the entire Israel-Egypt border. Under the peace accord, each side is allowed to deploy only a tiny number of troops or border guards in the zone. At the time of the accord, Israeli troops controlled Gaza until Israel withdrew its forces and settlers in 2005. Hamas has had free reign of the border since its 2007 takeover. Smuggling tunnels were dug under the Gaza Strip border, Gaza Egypt border, to get around the Israeli Egyptian blockade. Some of the tunnels were massive, large enough for vehicles. Hamas brought in weapons and supplies, and Gaza residents smuggled in commercial goods as diverse as livestock and construction materials. That changed over the last decade as Egypt battled Islamic militants in the Sinai. The Egyptian military cracked down on the tunnels and destroyed hundreds of them, saying they were being used to funnel weapons into Sinai. It bolstered its border wall above and beyond below ground and cleared the population from a three-mile area adjacent to Gaza where only military and police forces are allowed. During the fight against Sinai militants, Egypt negotiated with Israel and the U.S. to allow the deployment of its military zone, military in Zone C as the demilitarized zone is known on its side, its side of the border. In mid-December, Israel made an official request to Egypt to deploy its forces into the Philadelphia corridor, the Egyptian military official said. Egypt rejected the request. Egypt's main fear is that any ground operation in the area would result in thousands of Palestinians storming into Sinai, he said.
Since the war began, Egypt has strongly resisted calls that it take in a mass exodus of Palestinians. It fears Israel won't allow them to return to Gaza and says it doesn't want to abet ethnic cleansing. It also warned that militants from Gaza could enter the Sinai with those fleeing, bringing the potential for cross-border exchanges with Israel that could wreck the peace accord. Israel contends that it must have control over the border to prevent weapons smuggling to Hamas. Rashwan of Egypt's station, state uh, information service called Israeli claims of continued smuggling lies aimed at justifying a takeover of the corridor. After destroying 1,500 tunnels, Egypt has complete control over the border, he said. Kobe Michael, senior researcher with the Israeli think tank's Institute for National Security Studies and the Misgav Institute, said the quantity of Hamas weapons found during the offensive shows smuggling continues and Israel must have power to monitor the border. The only way such quantities of weapons could have reached the Gaza Strip are via the Philadelphia Corridor, he said. But Alon Ben David, military affairs correspondent for Israel's Channel 13 TV, said that 90% of the weapons in Gaza were produced in Gaza and that Egypt's crackdown largely shut down smuggling. The tunnels were really taken care of comprehensively by the Egyptians, he said. That was Israel vows to fight Hamas to Gaza-Egypt border by Sammy Magdi and Melanie Lidman from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 26, 2024. Associated Press writers Magdi and Lidman reported from Cairo and Jerusalem, respectively. All right, there's this one from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, January 27, 2024. Israel ordered to limit deaths in Gaza. UN court tells nation to do more to prevent genocide, but does not demand an end to war by Kate Lithicum. Jerusalem. The United Nations top court Friday ordered Israel to limit deaths and comply with international law against genocide in its military offensive in Gaza, but stopped short of demanding an end to the war. The International Court of Justice in The Hague issued the ruling in a case brought by South Africa accusing Israel of committing genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. South Africa had asked the court to issue an emergency decree demanding Israel halt its military campaign until the case is decided. The court did not grant that request, but in a win for South Africa, the panel of 17 judges declared that the genocide case may proceed and ordered Israel to refrain from killing Palestinians and to allow more humanitarian aid to enter the besieged coastal enclave. The court also said Israel must act to prevent and punish incitement to genocide and to report back within a month to show that it is complying with the measures. The accusations of genocide defined and in international law as an attempt to destroy a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group in whole or in part has outraged Israelis have told the court that their targets are not the people of Gaza, but the Hamas militants who seek to eliminate Israel. By dropping leaflets, informing civilians of planned bombing campaigns, and allowing aid convoys to enter Gaza, they say that they have not violated the terms of the Genocide Convention, a human rights treaty established in 1948 as a mechanism to prevent a, reputation, a repetition of the horrors of the Holocaust. Officials in Israel criticized the court's decision to proceed with the case. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has come under increasing pressure at home and abroad to end the war, called the decision outrageous and vowed to press on with the military siege. 
We will continue to do what is necessary to defend our country and defend our people, he said. Although Palestinians had hoped for more decisive measures, many welcomed the ruling, with the Foreign Ministry of the Palestinian Authority, Authority saying the court had ruled in favor of humanity and international law. The court has no way of enforcing its order, and Israel does not recognize the, uh, the court's jurisdiction, although it sent lawyers to argue its case. Yuval Shani, an expert in international law at the in, uh, Israel Democracy Institute, said it was unclear whether the decision would trigger decisive changes in Israel's war strategy. Shani, who said the court decision and navigated between two extreme positions, said he believes Israel will comply with the court's request for reporting on its actions. That process, he said, will increase scrutiny on Israel and open the door to further challenges by South Africa, which will be given the opportunity to respond to the report and could ask the court again to order a halt to fighting. Israel invaded Gaza by land, air, and sea after Hamas conducted a brutal surprise attack on its southern Israel on October 7. Israel says militants killed about 1,200 people, and the majority of them civilians, and kidnapped more than 200. Israel's relentless campaign in Gaza has killed more than 26,000 people according to the Hamas-run health ministry. The figure does not differentiate between combatants and non-combatants, but officials say that two-thirds of the victims have been women and children. Nearly all of Gaza's 2.3 million residents have been displaced and food, water, and medicine are in scant supply. Disease and hunger are widespread. South Africa formally accused Israel at the International Court of uh, Justice on December 29. At a hearing this month, it laid out evidence, including public statements by top Israeli officials calling for the destruction of Gaza, that Israel's actions are genocidal in character because they are intended to bring about the destruction of a, sub a substantial part of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Israel dismissed the filing as a despicable and contemptuous exploitation of the court and asked judges to dismiss it. Because the case may take years to be decided, South Africa petitioned the judges to issue a call to cease fighting in the interim. In Friday's ruling, the court upheld South Africa's right to sue Israel, even though it is not a direct, part, a direct party to the conflict. It also called on Hamas to release unconditionally the more 100 hostages who remain in Gaza. The ruling read aloud by the court's president, Joan E. Donoghue, expressed sympathy for civilians in Gaza and cited a United Nations official who said, Gaza has been a place of death and despair. Gaza has simply become uninhabitable. The court is acutely aware of the extent of the human tragedy that is unfolding in the region and is deeply concerned about the continuing loss of life and human suffering, Donoghue said. She also cited statements from Israeli leaders, including Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, who told soldiers in the opening days of the war, we are fighting human animals. Gaza won't return to what it was before. Responding to the court's findings on Friday, Gallant wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter, that Israel does not need to be lectured on morality by the court. He dismissed South Africa's case as anti-Semitic. Kobe Michael a professor at Israel's Institute for National Security Studies said many here believe that the United Nations is biased against Israel and that their country is held to a higher standard. Do you think that the approach toward Israel with regard to the war in Gaza is similar? 
to the approach to the Americans, the British, and other Western countries that were part of the coalition on Iraq or in Afghanistan, he said, it's unfair. And Ramallah, a city in the occupied West Bank that serves as the de facto capital of the Palestinian territories, people gathered at a municipal hall to watch the court hearing live. Leila Abbas, a filmmaker, says that she was glad the court had agreed to proceed with the genocide case, but given the urgent crisis in Gaza, she said she believed more decisive and immediate measures should have been taken. The decision won't help the people in Gaza immediately, she said, and next week in Gaza, it will be very cold. That was Israel ordered to limit deaths in Gaza by Kate Lithicum from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, January 27, 2024. Special correspondent Azala Zerikwe in Ramallah, West Bank, contributed to this report. Right, continuing from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 28, 2024, Netanyahu vows to push for complete victory. Israeli leader is defiant in wake of UN ruling. Meanwhile, a major aid group for Gaza is losing funding by Najib Jobain and Wafa Sharafa. Rafa Gaza Strip Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Saturday denounced an international court of justice ruling aimed at limiting death and destruction in his military's Gaza offensive, declaring that we decide and act according to what is required for our security and vow to press on until achieving complete victory. Among the first deaths reported since the Friday ruling, three Palestinians were killed in an airstrike, according to witnesses. Israel said the strike targeted a Hamas commander. Israel's military is now under increasing scrutiny now that the top United Nations court has asked for a compliance report in a month. The court's binding ruling stopped short of ordering a ceasefire, but its decision was in part a rebuke of Israel's conduct for its nearly four-month war on Gaza's Hamas rulers. The UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, or UNRWA, the main organization aiding Gaza's po uh, population, amid the humanitarian disaster, said nine countries suspended their funding following Israel's allegations that Gaza staff members had participated in the October 7 Hamas attack and that sparked the war. Among those countries are the United States, Britain, Italy, and Finland. Philippe Lazzarini, the Commissioner General of UNRWA, said in a statement that sanctions would be immensely irresponsible at such a desperate time for Gazans especially after the agency quickly fired the small group of staffers who were allegedly involved in the attack. The agency, with a staff of 13,000, relies almost entirely on contributions from UN member nations. It runs shelters for more than a million people and its lifeline can collapse any time now, Lazzarini said. The Israeli-Hamas war has killed more than 26,000 Palestinians, according to local health officials, destroyed vast swaths of Gaza, and displaced nearly 85% of the territory's 2.3 uh, million people. The Hamas attack in southern Israel left, uh, killed about 1,200 people, mostly civilians. About 250 hostages were taken. At least 174 Palestinians were killed over the previous 24 hours, the health ministry in Gaza said Saturday. The ministry does not distinguish between combatants and civilians in its death tolls, but has said about two-thirds are women and children. Israel holds Hamas responsible for civilian casualties, saying the militants embed themselves in the local population. 
Israel says its air and ground offensive in Gaza has killed more than 9,000 militants. Israel's military said it had conducted several raids on terror targets in the southern city of Khan Yunus, in addition to the airstrike in nearby Rafah targeting a Hamas commander. Bilal al Siksik said his wife, a son, and a daughter were killed in the Rafah strike, which came as they slept. He said the UN court ruling meant little since it did not stop the war. No one can speak in front of Israel. America, with all its greatness and strength, can do nothing, he said, standing beside the rubble and twisted metal that was left of his home. More than a million people have crammed into Rafah and the surrounding areas after Israel ordered civilians to seek refuge there. Designated evacuation areas have repeatedly come under airstrikes, with Israel saying it would go after militants as needed. Muwasi, a narrow coast strip once designated as a safe zone but struck in recent days, displaced Palestinians in uh, sandals tiptoed through garbage-lined puddles in damp, chilly weather. uh, Barriers crafted from sheets and tarps billowed in the wind. A mother wept after rain leaked in and soaked mattresses and blankets. This is our life. We have nothing and we left our homes with nothing, said Basama Bolbo, whose family ended up in Muwasi after leaving Khan Yunus and finding no shelter in Rafa. As thousands of Gazans fled uh, the fighting in Khan Yunus toward Muwasi, Israel shared videos showing a crowd appearing to call for toppling Hamas. Gaza residents expressed a dismay that the UN court did not order an immediate end to the fighting. The case brought by South Africa alleged that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinian territory's people. Israel vehemently denies the allegation. A final ruling is expected to take years. The court did order Israel to urgently get basic aid to Gaza. The UN and partners have said aid entering the territory remains well below the pre-war daily average of 500 trucks. The UN says access to central and northern Gaza has been decreasing because of excessive delays at checkpoints and heightened military activity. The UNRWA did not immediately comment on how operations would be affected by countries suspending funding, nor did it comment on details of the allegations against staffers. The agency has sheltered hundreds of thousands of people during the war and has helped to provide uh, medical care. The World Health Organization and Doctors Without Borders have issued urgent warnings about the largest health facility in Khan Yunus, Nasir Hospital, saying staff uh, could barely function with supplies running out and intense fighting nearby. WHO footage showed patients being treated on blood-smeared floors as frantic loved ones shouted and jostled. Cats scavenged on a mound of medical waste. These are the only painkillers we have left. If you want to count them, they are only for maybe five or four patients, said Dr. Muhammad Harara. Ashraf al-Quidra, spokesperson for Gaza's health ministry, said in a statement that Nasser Hospital lacked anesthesia and other medicines for intensive care units and had dangerous shortages of blood. The United States, Israel's closest ally, is increasingly called for restraint and for more humanitarian aid to be allowed into Gaza while supporting the offensive. More medita- uh, mediation lies ahead in search of a deal to secure the release of hostages held in Gaza in exchange for a pause in the fighting. 
More than 100 were released in a swap for Palestinian prisoners during a week-long ceasefire in November. An unspecified number of the remaining 136 hostages are believed to be dead. CIA Director William Burns will meet in Europe with the heads of intelligence agencies of Israel and Egypt and with the Prime Minister of Qatar, according to three people familiar with the matter who insisted on anonymity to discuss the sensitive talks. Netanyahu, in his address, said he would not take back a single word of his earlier criticism of Qatar, again accusing it of hunting Hamas and hosting its leaders. If they position themselves as a mediator, so please let them prove it and bring back the hostages and in the meantime deliver the medicines to them, he said. Hamas has said it will release the hostages only in exchange for an end to the war and the release of large numbers of Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. That was Netanyahu vows to push for complete victory by Najib Jobain and Wafa Sharafa from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 28, 2024. Jobain and Sharafa write for the Associated Press. And from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 29, 2024, Israel notes significant gaps after ceasefire talks with U.S., Qatar, Egypt. Netanyahu's office doesn't identify issues but says negotiations were constructive and will continue. From the Associated Press. Rafa Gaza Strip. Israel said significant gaps remain after ceasefire talks Sunday with the United States, Qatar, and Egypt, but called them constructive and said they would continue in the week ahead a tentative sign of progress on the potential agreement that could see Israel pause military operations against Hamas in exchange for the release of remaining hostages. A statement from the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office on the ceasefire talks did not say what the significant gaps were. There was, there was no immediate statement from the other parties. Sunday's intelligence meeting included William J. Burns, CIA Director, David Barnia, the head of Israel's Mossad intelligence agency, Mohammed bin Abdulrahman al-Tani, Qatari Prime Minister, and Abbas Kamil, Egyptian intelligence chief. Ahead of, the Biden, ahead of the meeting, two senior Biden administration officials said U.S. negotiators were making progress on a potential agreement that would play out over two phases, with the remaining women, elderly, and wounded hostages to be released in a first 30-day phase. It, also will call, it would also call for Israel to allow more humanitarian aid into Gaza. The officials requested anonymity to discuss the ongoing negotiations. More than 100 hostages, mainly women and children, were released in November in exchange for a week-long ceasefire and the release of 240 Palestinians held by Israel. Israeli Minister of Defense Yoav Gallant, in comments to troops Sunday, said that these days we are conducting a negotiation process for the release of hostages, but vowed that as long as hostages remain in Gaza, we will intensify the military pressure and continue our efforts. It's already happening now. At least 17 Palestinians were killed in two Israeli airstrikes that hit apartment buildings in central Gaza, according to an Associated Press journalist who saw the bodies at a hospital. One strike hit a building in Zawada, killing 13 people, and the other hit an apartment block in the Nusayrat refugee camp, killing four. Israel's military said the troops were engaging in close combat with Hamas in neighborhoods south in the, of the southern of the southern city of Khan of Yunus, Gaza's second largest. 
The war has killed more than 26,000 Palestinians, according to local health officials, destroyed vast swaths of Gaza, and displaced nearly 85% of the territory's people. Israel says its air and ground offensive has killed more than 9,000 militants without providing evidence. The October 7 Hamas attack in southern Israel killed about 1,200 people, mostly civilians and militants, took about 240 hostages. With Gaza's 2.3 million people in a deepening humanitarian crisis, the United Nations Secretary General called on the United States and others to resume funding to the, um, uh, funding the main agency providing aid to the besieged territory after Israel accused a dozen employees of taking part in the Hamas attack that ignited the war. Spokesperson Julia Toma warned that the Agency for Palestinian Refugees, known as UNRWA, will be forced to stop its support in Gaza by February 29. A quarter of Gaza's population is facing starvation. That was Israel notes significant gaps after ceasefire talks with U.S. Qatar, Egypt, from the Associated Press. Out of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 29, 2024. Alright, and here's something from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, January 30, 2024. Israel to review fatal shooting of Gaza group with white flag. Military says video of the incident prompted concerns of possible troop wrongdoing in a Palestinian's death from the Associated Press. Jerusalem. Israel's military announced it would review the shooting of a Palestinian man who was killed in the Gaza Strip while walking among a group of people waving a white flag saying a video of the episode raised concerns of possible wrongdoing by, by soldiers. A video shows a group of five men walking slowly down a street in an area west of the southern city of Khan Yunus, a current focus of Israel's ground war. As clouds of dark smoke billow overhead, the men hold their hands in the air. One waves a white flag, an international symbol of surrender. Suddenly shots ring out, killing Ramzi Abu Salal, 51, a Palestinian shopkeeper who was part of the group. The shooter was not seen in the video, but before the shots are fired, the camera pans showing what looks to be an Israeli tank position nearby. Ahmed Hijazi, a civilian who recorded the episode, told the Associated Press that an Israeli tank fired on the group. After the soldiers shot him, I rushed to help, but the firing continued toward us, Hijazi said. An Israeli military official said Sunday that the army was reviewing the shooting, which took place January 22nd. The official said the video first broadcast by CNN had helped authorities understand that there were military forces in the area and that there might be wrongdoing by soldiers. The British channel ITV earlier aired a similar video. The official speaking on condition of anonymity because there had not yet been an announcement would not say whether a formal investigation would take place. The military says forces take great care to verify targets before they strike. In the video, Hijazi interviews Abu Salal shortly before he was shot. Abu Salal said the group of men was trying to reach relatives whom they had left behind earlier in the day while evacuating their home in southern Gaza. The Israelis came to us and told us to evacuate, but they did not but they didn't let my brother out, Abu Salal said. We want to go and try to get them, God willing. Within seconds Abu Salal is shot dead. The other men quickly grab his body and rush back in the direction from which they came. The men declined to be re interviewed for fear of retribution. 
Palestinians and human rights groups have accused the Israeli military of using disproportionate or indiscriminate force in its Gaza offensive, leading to heavy civilian casualties. They say that even when such video, such killings are caught on video, military investigations rarely result in indictments of the soldiers involved. Since the start of the, palace, of the war, more than 26,000 Palestinians have been killed by a blistering Israeli ground and air offensive, according to health officials in Hamas-run Gaza. They do not differentiate between civilians and combatants, but say two-thirds of the dead are women and minors. Israel launched the offensive in response to an October 7 Hamas attack on southern Israel in which militants killed at least 1,200 people and brought about 240 hostages back to Gaza. Israel says Hamas fighters have embedded themselves within civilian infrastructure, making it difficult to destroy the militant group without harming civilians. It says more than 9,000 militants have been killed, though it hasn't been released, it hasn't released evidence to back the claim. Abu Salal's widow, 50-year-old Hanan Abu Salal, said that in the hours before last week's shooting, the army entered a building where the family was sheltered with more than 300 of others. She said Israeli forces ordered those in the building to leave without their belongings. When I tried to take my bag, a soldier aimed his gun at my head and ordered me to leave it, she said. In the video taken by Hijazi, Hanan Abu Salal can be seen running toward her husband, screaming, while the group of men hastily hauled his limp body back towards safety. As gunshots continue to ring out, a bloodstain spreads over her husband's chest, red quickly enveloping the white flag that one of the other men placed on his chest. He was immediately killed without even a few breaths to say goodbye, Hanana Abu Salal said. That was Israel to review fatal shooting of Gaza group with white flag from the Associated Press, out of the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, January 30, 2024. And we have this from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. Israeli forces in disguise raise West Bank Hospital. Three militants are slain by troops dressed as women and medical staff. Health officials condemn such attacks. By Arab Tafaha, uh, Melanie Lidman, and Wafa Sharafa. Janine West Bank. Armed Israeli forces disguised as women and medical workers stormed a hospital on Tuesday in the occupied West Bank, killing three Palestinian militants in a raid that underscored the spillover of deathly, deadly violence in the, to the territory during the war in Gaza. The Palestinian Authority Health Ministry said Israeli forces opened fire inside the wards of the Ivan Sina Hospital in the town of Jenin. The ministry condemned the raid and called on the international community to pressure Israel's military to halt such operations in hospitals. A hospital spokesperson said there was no exchanges of fire, indicating that it was a targeted killing. The military said the militants were using the hospital as a hideout. It alleged that one of, the, uh, one of those targeted in the raid had transferred weapons and ammunition to others for a planned attack permanently inspired by the uh, October 7 Hamas assault on southern Israel. The military did not provide evidence to back the claim. Video said to be from a hospital security camera that circulated on social media showed about a dozen undercover forces, most of them armed, dressed as women with Muslim headscarves or hospital staff in scrubs or white doctor's coats. One in a surgical mask carried a rifle in one arm and, fold and a folded wheelchair in the other. 
The forces were seen patting down one man who knelt against a wall, his arms raised. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, meanwhile, denied reports of a possible ceasefire deal to end the war in Gaza during an event that occupied West Bank, repeating his vow to keep fighting until absolute victory over Hamas. We will not end this war without achieving all of our goals, he said. We will not withdraw the Israeli military from the Gaza Strip, and we will not release thousands of terrorists, he said, referring to Hamas's main demands. The war began when hundreds of Hamas-led militants stormed into, the Israel, into Israel, killing at least 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and abducting about 240 others. More than 100 were released during a week-long ceasefire in November in exchange for Palestinians imprisoned by Israel. In response, Israel launched a blistering air, sea, and ground offensive that killed more than 26,700 people in Gaza, according to the health ministry in Hamas-run Gaza. The ministry account does not distinguish between fighters and non-combatants, but it says about two-thirds of the dead are women and children. The conflict has also leveled uh, vast swaths of the tiny coastal enclave, displaced 85% of its population, and pushed a quarter of residents towards starvation. That humanitarian crisis may soon be exacerbated, the United Nations has warned, after several countries froze funding to the main aid provider to Palestinians in Gaza after Israel alleges, Israeli alleges uh, that a dozen of the agency's workers participated in the October 7 assault. Israel has come under heavy criticism for its raids on Gaza hospitals, which have treated the tens of thousands of Palestinians wounded in the war, as well as providing crucial shelter for displaced people. Gaza's healthcare system has been on the verge of collapse, buckling under the scores of patients, the lack of fuel, and medical necessities limited by Israeli restrictions and repeated interruptions from fighting in and near the facility. Israel says militants use hospitals, especially in Gaza, as hideouts or bases from which to launch operations. The military has found underground tunnels in the vicinity of hospitals and says weapons and vehicles used in the October 7 attack have been discovered on hospital grounds. Since October 7, violence in the West Bank has also surged as Israel has cracked down on suspected militants killing more than 380 Palestinians, according to the Palestinian Authority Health Ministry. Most were killed in confrontations with Israeli forces during arrest raids or violent protests. The Israeli military says it has arrested nearly 3,000 Palestinians in the West Bank over the last four months. The military said Tuesday that its forces killed Mohammed Jalamne, 27, who it said was planning an imminent attack. The two other men killed, brothers Bazel and Mohammed Ghazawi, were hiding inside the hospital and were involved in the attacks, the military said. The military did not provide details on how the three were killed. Its statement said Jalamene was alarmed, was armed with a pistol, but made no mention of an exchange of fire. Hamas claimed the three men as members, calling the operation a cowardly assassination. Hospital spokesman, spokesperson Tawif al-Shabaki said that there was no exchange of fire and that the three were slain by Israeli forces in a targeted killing. He said the Israelis attacking, attacked doctors, nurses, and hospital security. What happened is a precedent, he said. There was never an assassination inside a hospital. There were arrests and assaults, but not an assassination. 
He said Basil Ghazawi had been a patient in the hospital since October with hemiplegia, or partial paralysis. The raid took place in Jenin, a long bastion of armed struggle against Israel, where the internationally backed Palestinian Authority and its security forces have little of a foothold. The city had been the frequent target of Israeli raids even before the war. Israeli operations there and in an adjacent built-up refugee camp have left vast amounts of destruction. Israel occupied the West Bank along, the with, along with the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem after the 1967 Middle East War. More than half a million Israelis now live in West Bank settlements. Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005, but along with Egypt, imposed a stifling blockade when Hamas came to power in 2007. The Palestinians claimed the territories as part of their future independent state, hopes for which have increasingly diminished. Progress, meanwhile, appeared elusive on a new deal between Israel and Hamas that could lead to a pause in fighting and see the release of dozens of hostages still held in Gaza. On Tuesday, Hamas's supreme political leader, Ismail Haniyeh, said that the group was studying the latest terms for a deal, but that the priority was the full withdrawal of Israeli forces from Gaza, something Israel opposes and that any agreement should, should lead to a long-term ceasefire. He said Hamas's leadership had been invited to Cairo to continue talks. Israel has said that ceasefire talks held Sunday were constructive, but that significant gaps remained in agreements proposed so far. The Prime Minister of Qatar, which has served as a key mediator with Hamas, was more upbeat, saying U.S. and Mideast mediators have reached a framework proposal for a ceasefire and hostage release to present to the militant group. Speaking at the Atlantic Council in Washington, Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdulrahman al-Tani said the mediators had made good progress. The Israeli military said it was fighting Palestinian militants in southern, central, and northern Gaza, which was pummeled in the first weeks of the war and where Israel has claimed to have largely dismantled Hamas. It said aircraft destroyed the launcher that fired a barrage of rockets at central Israel on Monday, the first such projectiles targeting that, uh, the populated area in weeks. That was Israeli forces in disguise raid West Bank Hospital by Arif Tufaha, Melanie Lidman, and Wafa Sharafa from the Los Angeles Times Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. Tufaha, Lidman, and Sharafa write for the Associated Press. Okay, let's take leave of Israel and on to other news. This is from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 28, 2024. Anniversary of Auschwitz's liberation observed. Survivors of Nazi death camps attend ceremony in Poland to mark Holocaust Remembrance Day. By Zarek Sokolowski. Auschwitzim, Poland. A group of survivors of Nazi death camps marked the 79th anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz-Birkenau camp during World War II and a modest ceremony Saturday in southern Poland. About 20 survivors from various camps set up by Nazi Germany around Europe laid wreaths and flowers and lighted candles at the death wall in Auschwitz where the Nazis executed thousands of inmates, mostly Polish resistance members and others. Later, the group, along with state officials and other participants, gathered for a ceremony by a brick, uh, a brick women's barrack at Birkenau that has recently undergone conservation. Next, they prayed and lighted candles at the monument in Birkenau, 
uh, the, near the Crematoria ruins. They were memorializing around 1.1 million camp victims, mostly Jews. The uh, museum site and memorial site and museum are near the city of Oswichem. Observances were also held in many other countries Saturday. Nearly 6 million, million European Jews were killed by the Nazis during the Holocaust, the mass murder of Jews and other groups before and during World War II. Soviet Red Army troops liberated Auschwitz-Birkenau on January 27, 1945. Marking International Holocaust Remembrance Day, the survivors were accompanied by Polish Senate Speaker Małgorzata Kedawa-Blonska, Culture Minister Bartomele Sienkiewicz, and Israeli Ambassador to Poland Jakob Livny. Helena Berenbaum, a 94-year-old survivor, was moved to speak beside Barak 27, uh, where she spent part of August 1943 until the forced evacuation of camp inmates on foot on January 18, 1945. She said the suffering and tragedy of people in contemporary wars and from the October 7 Hamas attack on Israel was painful for her and an extension of her Auschwitz experience. Livni, the ambassador, defended Israel's massive retaliation in Gaza. We hope that the lessons of the Holocaust have been learnt. Yet today we are astonished by accusations of genocide against the Jewish state while we fight for our existence, he said. The theme of the observances was the suffering of the individual human being, symbolized in simple hand-drawn portraits of the camp's inmates that were beamed on a screen during the observ observances in Birkenau. In Germany, where people laid flowers and lighted candles at memorials for the victims of the Nazis, Chancellor Olaf Scholz said his country would continue to bear responsibility for this crime against humanity. He called on citizens to defend Germany's democracy and fight anti-Semitism as the country marked the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Never again is every day, Schultz said in his weekly video podcast. January 27 calls to us, stay visible, stay audible against anti-Semitism, against racism, against misanthropy, and for our democracy. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, whose country is fighting to repel Russia's full-scale invasion, posted an image of a Jewish menorah on X to mark the Remembrance Day. Every new generation must learn the truth about the Holocaust. Human life must remain the highest value for all nations in the world, said Zelensky, who is Jewish and had family members who were lost in the Holocaust. In Italy, Holocaust uh, commemorations included a torch-lighted procession and official statements from top political leaders. Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni said her conservative nationalist government was committed to eradicating anti-Semitism that she said had been reinvigorated by the Israel-Hamas war. Maloney's critics have long accused her and her brothers of Italy party, which has neo-fascist roots, of failing to sufficiently atone for its past. Pro-Palestinian activists went ahead with rallies, ignoring a police order to postpone the marches to another day. There were brief clashes with police in Milan, and activists at a sit-in in Rome insisted they weren't protesting Jews, just what they called the genocide in Gaza. Italy's Jewish community has complained that such protests have co-opted the memory of the Holocaust and been used against Jews. 
In Rome, Italian-Palestinian student Amir Shaheen said it was appropriate to protest what he called the genocide in Gaza on Holocaust Remembrance Day. Unfortunately, it's happening again in Palestine. So precisely because it happened before, we must learn from our mistakes and reinforce this concept today is uh, even more important, he said. In Bosnia-Herzegovina, Jews and Muslims from the country and from abroad gathered in Srebrenica to jointly observe Holocaust Remembrance Day and to promote compassion and dialogue amid the Israel-Hamas war. It was organized by the Center Preserving the uh, Memory of Europe's Only Acknowledged Genocide Since the Holocaust, the massacre in 1995 of more than 8,000 Muslim Bosniaks in Srebrenica in Bosnia's inter-ethnic war. The event underscored the message that the two communities share the experience of persecution and must stay united in their commitment to peace. Menachem Rosenstadt, a lecturer at the a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School in New York, told the Associated Press on the eve of his participation in the Srebrenica commemoration that this year's observances were especially important. He said that's because the October 7th attack by Hamas on Israel was the largest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. We need to bring people together and find common ground, said Rosenstab, the son of Holocaust survivors. To make sure it doesn't happen again, this has to become the conscience of the world. He said the International Commemoration Day, created by the United Nations in 2005, is important to ensure the world remembers the Holocaust long after the survivors and their forebearers are gone. Preserving the camp, a notorious symbol of the horrors of the Holocaust, with its cruelly misleading, arbiet mach frei, work makes one free, gate, requires constant effort by historians and experts and substantial funds. The Nazis, which occupied Poland from 1939 to 1946, at first used Auschwitz to hold and kill Poland's resistance fighters. In 1942, the wooden barracks, gas chambers, and crematoria of Birkenau were added for the murder of Europe's Jews, Roma, and other nationals, as well as Russian prisoners of war. Since 1979, the campsite has been on the UNESCO list of World Heritage Sites. That was Anniversary of Auschwitz Liberation Observed by Sarek Sokolowski from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 28, 2024. Sokolowski writes for the Associated Press. AP writers Kirsten Grieshaber in Berlin, Nicole Winfield, and Francesco Sportelli in Rome, Joanna Koslowski in London, and Anita Snow in Phoenix contributed to this report. We now move on to an opinion article from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 10, 2024. We're seeing again the damage Jeffrey Epstein did to his young victims. Court files remind us of the courage required to seek justice in the case. By Robin Abkarian. I could happily live the rest of my life without being reminded of Jeffrey Epstein, his years-long exploitation of young women or the many famous male moths who were drawn to the billionaire's flame. I'm sure his emotionally scarred victims wish they could too. Recent news developments unfortunately make the sordid Epstein saga impossible to avoid. And maybe that's as it should be, since the lives of so many young women were tarnished by a vile, lecherous creep and his partner, who delighted in not just abusing underage girls, but using them to lure high-profile figures into his orbit.
This week, two more sets of documents related to Virginia Giftware's 2015 defamation lawsuit against Epstein's longtime girlfriend and procurer, Ghislaine Maxwell, were released on the order of U.S. District Judge Loretta Preska. The case was settled in 2017, but many of the documents remained under the sea, under seal until now. The judge said, said she was releasing them because <clears throat> much of their con contents are already publicly, public knowledge. Released on Monday and Tuesday were the fourth and fifth documents dumped, dumped this month and were accompanied by feverish speculation about which bold-faced names would crop up as Epstein's associates. Indeed, dozens of names appeared on the files. Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Ron Burkle, David Copperfield, Richard Branson, St Stephen Hawking, Noam Chomsky, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Also, Kevin Spacey, Michael Jackson, Cameron Diaz, Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Blanchett, and Naomi Campbell, among many, many others. Some of the many, many news stories about the newly released documents are nothing more than a bait and switch. Cameron Diaz breaks silence after being named in Jeffrey Epstein's documents. Seriously, Fox 11? Diaz said through her publicist that she never met the guy. One explosive allegation in the new documents concerns Epstein's mentor and chief investor, the retail magnate Leslie Wexner. In a 2016 depos uh, deposition related to a separate defamation case, Giffrey alleged that she was trafficked to Wexner. Wexner has not been charged with the crime, and he has not responded to Tuesday's revelations. According to ABC News, in 2019, after Epstein was arrested, Wexner told his employees that he was unaware of any of Epstein's criminal sexual behavior. Apart from that instance, the judge is right. We've heard most of what's uh, in the documents in earlier reporting about the odious Epstein, who was smitten with intellectuals and scientists, collected rich and powerful people as acquaintances, and apparently liked to name drop, name, like to drop names. In testimony, one of his victims described this predilection. During sexual massages, he would be on the phone a lot at that time, and one time he said, oh, that was Leonardo, or that was Kate Blanchett, or Bruce, Bruce Willis, that kind of thing. Meanwhile, Maxwell, who was convicted in December 2021 of felonies, including the sex trafficking of a minor and sentenced to 20 years, resides in a Florida low-security prison. According to a recent report by the Justice Department's Office of the Inspector General, her accommodations are far less pleasant than Epstein's New York Brownstone, Private Caribbean Island, sprawling New Mexico Ranch, or the lavish home in New Hampshire, where she hid until her arrest in July 2020. The report said that inmates at the Federal Correctional Institution in Tallahassee were served moldy bread and inspectors found spoiled vegetables and bug-infested cereal in their, in their storeroom. That is probably cold comfort to Epstein's victims, including Giffrey, who was recruited by Maxwell in 2000 when she, a 16-year-old locker room attendant at Mar-a-Lago. For three years, Giffrey has testified she was uh, kept as a sex slave, <clears throat> flown around the world, and lent out to high-profile men for sex. Epstein's purposes in lending Jane Doe, along with other young girls, to such powerful people were to ingratiate himself with them for business, personal, political, and financial gain, as well as to obtain potential blackmail information, her attorneys claimed, in court documents. You may recall that Giffrey's accusations and lawsuit against Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, 
led to his symbolic defenestration and a confidential settlement reported to be about $16 million. And you've undoubtedly seen the infamous 2001 photo of Andrew at Maxwell London's Maxwell's London home, his hand around the waist of Giffrey, then known as Virginia Roberts. Giffrey, who was the first of Epstein's victims to publicly identify herself, has become an advocate for survivors of sex trafficking. After Epstein killed himself in August 2019 in a New York federal jail cell while awaiting trial, his estate created a victim compensation fund. Its administrator reported in 2021 that the fund had paid more than $121 million to at least 135 of the 225 or so people who made claims. Because of his suicide, Epstein's victims will never get the full measure of justice to which they are entitled. And while his, his and Maxwell's names will eventually fade, blessedly, from the public discourse, we should never forget that the courage it took for Giffrey and others to bring them to justice, nor the lifelong impact their heinous crimes will have on those women. The pain you have caused me is almost indescribable, wrote Giffrey in the victim impact statement she submitted at Maxwell's sentencing in 2022. Nightmares wake me at all hours. In those dreams, I relive the awful things you and others did to me and the things you forced me to do. But, she added, despite you, I've grown into a woman who tries to do good in the world. A woman who, on her best days, feels like she is making a difference. That we're seeing again the damage Jeffrey Epstein did to his young victims by Robin Upkarian from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 10, 2024. Here's something from the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 17, 2024. Billionaire Ackman opens mouth to insert foot by Michael Hitzik. There was a time, I must admit, when the hedge fund billionaire Bill Ackman was one of my favorite, was one of my Wall Street heroes. It started in December 2012. Ackman had decided to take a short position in the shares of the multi-level market firm Herbalife. Ackman justified his bet with a heroic 334-deck PowerPoint presentation laying out all the features of the Los Angeles company that he made it that he said made it indistinguishable from a scam. It marketed its nutritional supplements as unique products when they were actually commodity supplements sold at premium prices, he said. It was a pyramid scheme in disguise and more. Some of Ackman's points dovetailed with reported with reporting by me and my colleagues at the Times that it's widely touted inflation with UCLA was a penny-pinching attempt to gain reflected scientific credibility from the university's reputation to, the, to UCLA's credit and that it exploited Latinos in its marketing, for example. In short, I saw Ackman's campaign as an effort to take down the company that needed taking down. That was good, the good side of Bill Ackman, willing to take a short position in a high-flying stock and back it up with solid research. Only someone with a lot of money and even more personal vanity seemed capable of this audacious approach. As it happened, however, Ackman's campaign also revealed the drawbacks of Ackmanism. He was so confident that government regulators would seize on his claims and bring the, the stock then traded in the mid-40s to zero that he publicly disclosed that he had placed a billion dollars short bet against the company. Short investments make the money make money if the shares fall. His audacity brought Ackman haters out of the woodwork. 
Among those who harbored all gripes about Ackman was the storied investor Carl Icahn, who evidently, as I wrote, relished the opportunity to put the squeeze on a short seller who had been unwise enough to proclaim his vulnerable positions to the world. Icahn took the other side of the bet, propping up Herbalife's price. Ultimately, the company settled a Federal Trade Commission lawsuit by paying $200 million to 335,000 consumers who had been gilled by Herbalife's deceptive earnings claims into signing on as Herbalife marketers. The company agreed to restructure its business. That didn't save Ackman because the company survived. He disclosed in early 2018 that he finally had ex exited his short investment at Herbalife, taking a loss that some investment analysts estimated at the full $1 billion. Obviously, Ackman's mistake then was braggadocio. He had kept his short bet quiet. He might have been able to ride Herbalife's price decline down a healthy profit, but he couldn't resist boasting about how smart and audacious he was. The same character flaw has been on display in Ackman's latest crusade, which began as an ultimately successful effort to oust Claudine Gay as the president of Harvard. This effort necessarily had to be waged in public, since it was clear that only public pressure would force the hand of Gay and, and Harvard's leadership. Ackman began his crusade with complaints about Gay's response to purported anti-Semitism on the Harvard campus and a flat-footed response to a tente Tendisia's question from right-wing Representative Elise Stefanik, Republican of New York, at a congressional hearing. After resignation as president, Ackman latched on to uh, accusations of plagiarism in some of Gay's academic writing to assert that she should also be fired from the university's faculty. Students are forced to withdraw for much less, Ackman tweeted. Rewarding her with a highly paid faculty position sets a very bad precedent for academic integrity at Harvard. That's the public position that has come back to bite Ackman where it hurts the most. By pushing on the plagiarism, the accusations against Gay, Ackman opens the door to a broader inquiry into plagiarism in academia, specifically in the work of his wife, Neri Oxman, a former professor at MIT. The publication by Business Insider of allegedly plagiarized passages in Oxman's work has set Ackman off on a delirious public snit against Business Insider and contortions about what is and isn't plagiarism and what volume of it warrants professional extermination all played out in extended tweets. The battle has led to further examination of Oxman's work, which doesn't always impress with its coherence. A few other billionaires with ambitions of running the world have learned that they have a better chance of getting what they want out of life by remaining in the background. One is Peter Thiel, who privately and quietly bankrolled a privacy lawsuit brought by wrestler Hulk Hogan against the celebrity website Gawker. Thiel's role in backing Hogan's lawsuit with a $10 million donation remained a secret until after a jury returned a $140 million judgment against Gawker. Would Gawker have lost if it uh, could have made Teal's world public? Possibly not. By remaining behind the curtain, Teal got what he wanted, which was effectively to put Gawker out of business. Then there's Elon Musk, who was able to bask in his public image as a brilliant engineer with the ability to solve global warming and advance the cause of space travel through his companies Tesla and SpaceX. 
that lasted until they bought Twitter and became the Twitter tweeter in chief, revealing himself as an unreconstructed right-wing anti-Semitic conspiracy monger. The effects this revelation will have on Tesla's electric vehicle sales and SpaceX's role as a government contractor are still unclear, but they may not be good. There's more to this than a yarn about a billionaire hedge fund manager with terminal digital logoria. Ackman plainly never learned the, the lessons of the Streisand effect, which describes how efforts to conceal or suppress information end up bringing that information even greater public attention. The term refers to an attempt by Barbara Streisand to have an aerial photo of her Malibu estate removed from a government mapping project rather than secure her privacy Streisand's lawsuit turned the photo into a sensation on the internet where it remains easily available. Ackman's public conniption on X, formerly Twitter, don't make him Oxman MIT or the MIT Media Lab, where Oxman used to be able uh, used to be a professor, look good. And none of it would have happened if Matt Ackman had kept his mouth shut. That brings us to what has reemerged into public awareness as a result. Oxman's reputation as a public intellectual, such as it was, doesn't seem to have been enhanced by the more recent scrutiny of her work. Not that doubts about her output are entirely new. In 2018, Rochelle Hampton of Slate.com memorably and accurately described Oxman's Twitter feed as a stream of majestic gobbledygook. The Streisand effect demonstrated its potency as recently as Monday, when Ackman posted a fantastically lengthy tweet responding to a report in Business Insider about Oxman's dealings with the late sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein, who had been a big contributor to the MIT Media Lab. Who knew? Today, plenty of people. Ackman objected to Business Insider's assertion that he pressured MIT in emails to keep Oxman's name out of the, deve deve the developing Ep Epstein scandal. Business Insider attributed the pressure claim to the Boston Globe, but the Globe didn't use that term and merely reported the emails. In his own defense, Ackman posted the key email in question and urged his ex-followers to read it carefully so you can see for yourself. Ackman must have been bluffing on the assumption that no one would bother actually reading the email. Those who do will discover that it reads unmistakably as a threat to do damage to MIT's reputation if Oxman's name is mentioned in connection with the Epstein matter. Here's the money quote from a message from Ackman to Joy Ito, the Media Lab's director. It is very important that you don't mention Neri's name or otherwise get her involved or she will have to issue her own statement to protect her reputation, explaining why it was sent and at those who request who else received similar gifts, how she met Epstein, who else at MIT received funding from Epstein. This will, of course, blow this up even more, which we would certainly not like to see happen. Tell me that that doesn't remind you of that stock joke in which gangsters tell their target, nice place you got here, be ashamed if anything happened to it. This only resurrected the noisome history of Epstein and the Media Lab, which MIT surely hoped would be dead and buried after it issued an independent report on the matter in January 2020. The report says Ito cultivated Epstein as a donor, even after Epstein's 20-way conviction in Florida for soliciting minors for prostitution. Ito resigned from MIT in 2019. Among the beneficiaries, according to the report, was Oxman, 
who met Epstein on campus in 2015 and received donations from him totaling $125,000 for her research. Ackman says it was $150,000. In 2017, she arranged to have a ceremonial risen orb, apparently a gi-ga, given to donors and other honorees that she designed delivered to Epstein. After their one meeting in 2015, Ackman says Oxman never accepted an invitation or saw or spoke to Epstein again. The MIT report doesn't state otherwise. MIT can't be happy that Ackman has turned the media to the spotlight again on the Media Lab, which has regularly been criticized as an overblown hive of inflated egos with the skimpiest record of accomplishments to its name. Anyway, Oxman left MIT in 2021. The greatest damage that Ackman's tweets have done may be to the debate over ac academic plagiarism. Despite asserting that Gay's plagiarism damaged Harvard's reputation for academic integrity, he now argues that allegations of Oxman's copying of passages and phrases from other sources, including even Wikipedia, without proper attribution amount only to trivial citation errors, not plagiarism at all. He has threatened to sue Business Insider, which says its stories on the issue are accurate and the facts well documented. He also has threatened to do a scrub on the academic work of MIT's hundreds of faculty members in search of plagiarism. Is there any clarity to come out of this mudslinging? The answer is no, just more mud and more noise until Ackman learns to shut up. That was Billionaire Ackman Opens Mouth to Insert Foot by Michael Hiltzik. From the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 17, 2024. Hiltzik writes a blog on LATimes.com. Follow him on Facebook or on X, formerly Twitter, at HiltzikM or email Michael.Hiltzik at LATimes.com. All right, let's turn to articles from the Jewish Journal, January 19 to the 25th, 2024. And we go to the My Turn section. This is called The Faith of Hadass Lowenstern by Judy Grun. My WhatsApp devoted to Israel burns up every day with news updates, uplifting photos, short videos, requests to donate money for a new need, and more. So many of these posts are unbelievably inspiring, and that brings me to Hadass Lowenstern. Her husband, Elisha, was killed on the seventh day of Hanukkah. Shortly after, Hadass began recording short videos that express remarkable faith. Interviews with her have followed, and I find it so moving that I decided to type up her comments from several of the videos. I've condensed and spliced her remarks for clarity and con conciseness. There are many remarkable men and women throughout Israel whose courage, bravery, determination, and faith are helping to carry us through these times. Hadass Lowenstern is one of these women. Here's what she had to say. Elisha was the love of my life. We spent 13 beautiful years together and have six children. Our eldest son will be a bar mitzvah one week before Rosh Hashanah. Our youngest is a 10-month-old daughter. We were so happy together and had a, had a wonderful life. My husband was a software engineer and big Torah scholar. He translated a Gemara Steinsaltz into English tutored bar mitzvah boys and was in charge of the shul schedule. He didn't waste any time. He used an app to do interval exercise, and during the minute breaks between squats or sit-ups, he'd go to the table and learn Mishnayot. When the news came on October 7, we both said he had to go. 
We only had about a minute to talk two times in the very first several weeks. He said he was very happy to fight for our army Yisrael. We were both happy and very confident. Elisha's tank was the first one to enter the south of Gaza. When he drove his tank in to rescue soldiers who had gotten into a situation, they shot him. When the soldiers knocked on my door on the last night of Hanukkah, I immediately knew. I called my children so they could also hear the news. I realized they did not know the laws of mourning, and I had to call the rabbi to advise. The rabbi came over, and we all cried. My son asked if he was still allowed to study Torah, even though he was exempt during mourning. The rabbi looked at him and said, The question shows you are truly Elisha's son. My nine-year-old daughter began to recite Psalm 100, a psalm of thanks to Hashem for all he does for us. We believe in it even in the hardest moments of our lives. I am so proud of all my kids. The Lowenstern family all stood at the funeral and saluted Elisha. It's hard. It's hard. But we must continue this war. The Lowenstern family will not let Hamas win. Listen, Hamas, you can't beat the Jewish people. Will you ever learn from Jewish history? You will finish like Pharaoh. The sea will open and you will drown. We will continue to do Chesed, sing Shabbat songs, and study Torah. Am Yisrael Chai. My husband didn't leave a parting letter as the army advises. He said he didn't need to because he lived in a way that everyone knew how he felt. Every night he told me, I love you, thank you for marrying me. Every night. When you do this day after day, it's big. Don't say when I will have time, I will make that call, write that letter, say I love you, do it now. Elisha was the 405th soldier who died in this war there are now more than 500. Fewer in a position where their families could see them before burial. Thank God Alicia was hit in his lower back. I could see his beautiful face. So many didn't have anything to bury. Talking about, talking about his death is so insignificant in my eyes because he only died once, but he lived every day. This was Hashem's decision. We can't change it. While we plan on living such a wonderful life, the bad guys will never live such a life. We will live through the mitzvot, and this is the true victory. Hashem decides when you will die. It can be at any age. The question is not how you die, but how you live in this world. When my husband went up to heaven, I know all the angels stood up and clapped and said, Kol HaKavod, look what you did. This gives me comfort. I have so much to be thankful for. I was the only woman in the world who had the merit to marry Elisha and have six kids. Jacob, our forefather, had a hard life, but when he met Esau, he told him, Yesh li kol, I have everything. I have learned these lessons from all our holy fathers and mothers. I named my firstborn son after a man who was killed in Lebanon, and someone already named their son Elisha even before his Shlochim. Many times a day, I find myself telling the kids when they ask me something, you have to ask Abba. They look at me strangely, but I repeat, you really have to ask Abba. He would buy me a present every Rosh, run Rosh Hodesh. The other day, it was Rosh Hodesh, Shevat, and a friend knocked on my door and gave me a present for Rosh Hodesh. I looked up and said, thank you, Elisha. Even from heaven, he remembers me. We are all fighting either in Gaza or in the hospital recovering, and the women and children left at home are fighting on the home front. I worked very hard not to complain when Elisha was in Gaza. When he asked, 
I said everything was okay. Each of my children is a different person, and each has their own way of coping. I know there was a long way ahead of us. Educating children is never easy, even with two parents. I will have to daven a lot. Two hours ago, I looked up and said to Hashem, Hello, can you help me? I need to get everyone to sleep. Tomorrow he will give me new strength. I'm not carrying anyone. Hashem is carrying everyone. I'm just sharing what makes me strong. This isn't me or mine. These are things I learned from the Torah and my rabbi. Everyone wants to give us cakes. We don't need any more cakes. We need bitahon, certainty that Hashem is in charge. If you thought you could just live in this world and be a Jew but not really understand what it means to be a Jew, it's time to learn who you are and who we are. Our emuna, faith, and betachon are the only things that will get us through this hard time. This morning, people from the army came and brought me his tefillin, talit, personal belongings. I cried my eyes out. Then I looked at the watch and said, now it's time for me to make lunch. That's it. I'm going to make lunch for my kids today, and that is my victory. I'm even going to make something my kids really like, and I'm going to sit with them and eat. You took my husband, but you're not winning. I am the winner because I make lunch today, and I will make lunch tomorrow. And I will continue living, and that is the true triumph. That was The Faith of Hadass Lowenstern by Judy Grun from the My Turn section. Judy Grun's next memoir, Bylines and Blessings, Overcoming Obstacles, Striving for Excellence, and Redefining Success, will be published on February 20. She is also a book editor and writing coach. And also from the My Turn section, this is called Learning to Love Judaism's Best Loved Book by Matthew Schultz. Poetry is one of humankind's most enduring and significant art forms. The only problem is that most of humankind doesn't seem to care. According to a survey from the National Endowment for the Arts, just 9.2% of American adults can read any poetry in 2022. Compare that with 53% who read prose. Religious culture, however, has a different relationship with poetry. It is often said that the Book of Psalms, the Tanakh's collection of liturgical poems, is the best-loved book of the Hebrew canon, the breakout hit of the ancient world that accompanies the soul of Jew and Christian alike in times of trouble or joy. Religious Jews are in near-constant contact with the Book of Psalms. They are a significant part of every prayer service. They are prescribed from moments of anguish and moments of joy. They are a response to life. Events or life events are merely a way of passing time on the bus, as any commuter in Jerusalem has observed. This is true, but many, myself included, have long struggled to connect with Psalms. It is too repetitive. It is too self-assured. The psalmist, as the anonymous author is often called, is triumphalist and vengeful when he's in a good mood. When he's feeling low, he writes paranoid screeds about enemies and obsesses over the punishment and humiliation of evildoers. Sure, there are beautiful lines interspersed, but they have never been uh, enough for me to love Judaism's best-loved book. And so, when I was asked to review duets on Psalms, drawing new meaning from ancient words by Rabbis Jack Raymer and Eli Spitz, I leaped at the opportunity, hoping that I would find the author's love of solves contagious. After all, I'm a rabbinical student. I am someone whose job it will be to help people connect with Torah. How can it be that I am unable to love our most lovable text?
Their book is a work of scholarship and a labor of love. The authors select 14 out of the 150 psalms to analyze. They both offer their own interpretations, hence duets. Perhaps these are also duets and that the authors seem to riff on the psalms and off one another. Rather than strictly analyzing each psalm according to a predefined set of literary or religious criteria, they follow their instincts and improvise, moving seamlessly between religious commentary, personal reflection, and historical context. Take their treatment of Psalm 35, which focuses entirely on its role in inspiring the founding fathers at the Continental Congress in 1774. Or take their treatment of Psalm 145, known popularly as Ashrei. It is said by the sages of the Talmud that one who recites Ashrei three times a day is guaranteed of his or her place in the world to come. I don't tend to take such Talmudic pronouncements about the afterlife literally, but I have long recognized this as a good deal, life eternal for an unbeatable low price. Hence, in my own version of Pascal's wager, I have been punctilious about never missing an Ashrei. This has made the recitation of this particular psalm into a dreadful chore, however, something I do by root or to get my world to come points as they, as then, and then move on. In Duets on Psalms, Rabbi Reamer helps me to repair this relationship with the text. We think that it means that if you say the Ashrei sincerely, you will be admitted into the world to come. But that is not what it says. It says that whoever says the Ashrei is in the world to come. For these few minutes, while we say these words, we are in the world to come. And so it is wrong to rattle off those words quickly as so many of us do. I was also moved by the discussion of Psalm 137. 137, known commonly as By the Rivers of Babylon, is a poignant portrayal of the pain of exile but its final line is a gruesome expression of bitterness and violence. Fair Babylon, you creditor, a blessing on him who repays you in kind. What you have inflicted on us, a blessing on him who seizes your babies and dashes them against the rocks. The book's discussion of this psalm centers almost entirely on this last line. The last part is, to put it mildly, not loved at all. There are some people, both Jews and Christians, who abhor this part of the psalm. It is considered by some to be the most offensive passage in the entire Bible. Hence, the authors grant us permission not to love every line of psalms, even while they guide towards deeper understanding. They quote a preacher named Samuel Spurgeon, who wrote, Anyone who has stood by helplessly and watched his wife raped before his eyes, and anyone who has stood by helplessly and seen his children murdered before his eyes, and anyone who has seen the sanctuary that he considers to be most holy uh, reduced to ashes before his eyes has a right to criticize this passage. The rest of us should keep a respectful silence. The impact of reading duets on Psalms has been twofold. First, their commentaries have made these ancient poems light up for me with new significance and associations. Second, they have reassured me that it's not an aesthetic or spiritual failing on my part that I have thus far been unable to love Judaism's best-loved book. As Rabbi Spitz writes in the, in the introduction, I only recently began to appreciate their artistry, origins, and richness of content. What I found engaged my heart and mind. I fell in love with Psalms, and I want to show you why. 
Rabbi Reimer then writes, We can somehow manage without knowing the names and dates of the authors and without knowing the musical notes. But what makes the Psalms so difficult for us to understand is that they were written by people who felt a deep and personal relationship to God that we do not and we do not have this awareness. The book thus serves as a bridge for those who are either new to the Psalms or who, like me, are deeply familiar with the Psalms but have been looking for a way to connect on a deeper spiritual and emotional level. I cannot say that you'll soon see me on the Jerusalem bus mouthing Psalms quietly as we lurch through traffic, but my relationship with this part of our scripture has been altered and deepened, and this is more than enough. Selah. That was Learning to Love Judaism's Best Loved Book by Matthew Schultz from the My Turn section. Matthew Schultz is a Jewish journal columnist and rabbinical student at Hebrew College. He's the author of the essay collection, What Came Before, Tupelo 2020, and lives in Boston and Jerusalem. Continuing with the My Turn section, this is called In the Shadow of War, Global Women Leaders Meet Online by Toby Klein Greenwald. A global leadership conference for Jewish women entrepreneurs and leaders was originally scheduled to be held in person in Jerusalem in January, will happen online instead due to the war in Israel on January 21st, 2024. Under the banner Become the Leader That the World Needs, this conference was initiated and is led by Natalie Garson, who has been a business mentor for 12 years in Israel. She launched the Global Network for Jewish Women Entrepreneurs in 2020, and in 2023, it became a nonprofit with a mission to create bridges between Jewish women from Israel and from all around the world and to empower them to become the Jewish leaders they were born to be. The goal of the conference, Garson said, is to raise awareness around Jewish leadership. A few months ago, we could not imagine that this horrible war would break out in Israel on October 7, 2023, and that we would all be going through such difficult times in Israel and around the world. Now that the very existence of Israel and the Jewish people are at stake, it is our responsibility as Jewish women to connect to our Jewish identity, to align with our values, and to become the leaders that this world needs to be agents of change. Garrison's hope is that by moving the conference to an online presence, more women from around the world will be able to join and be a part of this paradigm shift. Every woman who participates will leave the conference feeling even more connected to her people and to her values and will know what it means to be a Jewish leader and to take responsibility on how she will be a part of the solution during this important time in history of Israel and of the Jewish people as a whole, she said. Garson herself has an intriguing background and journey. She was born in France, then lived for many years in the U.S. In New York, in New York, she studied at the Rika Brewer Teachers Seminary in Washington Heights and attended City College, then lived in Lakewood and worked as a teacher, and later lived in Los Angeles where she was a teacher and lived in the Pico Boulevard area. She returned to France in 1997 and made Aliyah in 2004. She has two children, 28 and 29 years old, and lives in Jerusalem. As if anything in her personal life led to her creating this organization and conference, Garson said that while living in France and in the U.S., she had always felt a strong connection to her Jewish identity and that she decided to come live in Israel to be able to align fully with that identity. Today, she wants to offer this opportunity to women from all over the world, even if they cannot physically be in Israel, 
The global network, she said, is a place for women from all over the world to connect with their Jewish identity, especially after what happened on October 7. Women feel that uh, they need to connect with other like-minded Jewish women because it doesn't feel safe to be in other circles anymore. Garson said, I have always been passionate about my Jewish identity and feminine leadership. The global network is bringing my two passions together, and I really believe that the Jewish people need more women leaders. Among the questions addressed at the conference will be, do you feel that it is not safe to be Jewish anymore? Whether you are in Israel or anywhere in the world, do you feel powerless and frustrated because you don't know how you can contribute? Is it difficult to focus or find meaning in anything? Are you not sure how you can support the Jewish people and the Jewish nation? Inspirational keynote speakers include Rivka Ravitz, Chief of Staff of former Israeli President Reuven Rivlin, Filiur Hassan Nahom, Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem in charge of foreign relations, who has been very active at Hasbara on the international scene since the war began and before, Justine Zwirling, Head of the Middle East for Shore Capital Markets and founding member of the UAE Israel Business Council and Gulf Israel Women's Forum, Adrienne Gold Davis, Director of Experience and Engagement for Momentum and an international Jewish educator, Joelle Eckstein, Chair of the Eckstein Fund, Board Member of the Global Network, Daphne Lazar Price, Executive Director of Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, and Mayan Hoffman, Deputy CEO of Strategy and Innovation, and Senior Correspondent for the Jerusalem Post, among others. The conference has partnered with Momentum and will include Jewish Leadership Roundtables, which will be spearheaded by Dana Center Mula, Momentum's Director of Leadership Development, to discuss brainstorm and reflect in small groups on Jewish leadership facilitated by female Jewish leaders from around the world. Questions in the roundtables and panels will include, how do you want to show up for yourself, your family, your business, your community, your people, and your country in these difficult times? Where do you think that you could uh, make a difference, share your experience, and be an agent of change for the Jewish people? What are the core Jewish values that you want to emphasize in your life and your business? How to respond when Israel is being attacked by people who are spreading lies or ignoring the facts? How can you contribute to the war effort in Israel, and how can you fight anti-Semitism around the world? How is being resilient in the Jewish people's DNA, and how can one be resilient even in the most difficult times? And most of all, what is the vision for the future of the Jewish people and of Israel, and how can Jewish women contribute to it and be a part of it? For more information on how to register, go to Global Leadership Conference uh, 24. For questions, contact uh, contact at jgnjwel.org. That's In the Shadow of War, Global Women Leaders Meet Online by Toby Klein Greenwald from the My Turn section. Toby Klein Greenwald is an award-winning journalist and theater director, editor of wholefamily.com, will be leading one of the roundtables at the conference. All right, let's go to this one, also from the My Turn section. We Must Never Forget Them by Rabbi Chaim Steinmetz. One could call this the Gettysburg Address of the Exodus. At the beginning of Parshat Vayera, God speaks to Moses and assures him that slavery is about to come to an end. Therefore, I say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out of under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage 
and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. Exodus 6, 6-8 In just a few sentences, the Torah gives us an overview of the full process of redemption not just an escape from slavery, but the creation of a new nation with a homeland of their own. The Talmud refers to the first four verbs in this section, bring it out, rescue, redeem, and take, as the four languages of redemption. To this day, the four cups of wine at Passover Seder are in celebration of these words. The Parsha begins with this speech, most probably in order to begin on a high point but it also begins mid-conversation, which strips it out of context. God's words are actually a response to an angry challenge by Moses. After his initial petition to Pharaoh backfires and causes even greater pain to the slaves, Moses turns to God and says, Lord, why have you done such evil to this nation? Why is it that you have sent me? Moses' words border on the sacrilegious. Indeed, several commentaries criticize Moses for this. Rashi says, that God, in his response, suddenly rebukes Moses for his complaint. One Midrash says Moses was later punished for challenging God and not allowed to enter Israel. Yet, the simple reading of God's response is that he takes Moses' challenge seriously. That is why God offers such a thorough and detailed reply. Moses is speaking on behalf of those who are oppressed and downtrodden. And even if he speaks with chutzpah, he does so out of love for his Jewish brothers and sisters. Another Midrash, Shemot Rabbah 5.22, amplifies Moses' complaint. Moses knows that Jews will eventually be rescued, but he cannot tolerate the delay. A future redemption, Moses says, will not help the Jews who are now being thrown under the building. This curious phrase refers to a shocking image found in rabbinic literature, Midrash Zuta Kohelet 7.7, Rashi Sanhedrin 111a, that in the Egyptian construction projects of Pit, Pithom and Ramasses, Jews were used as bricks and squeezed into the gaps of walls. A similar Midrash 2.24 asserts Pharaoh sought to heal himself of leprosy by bathing in the blood of 150 murdered Jewish children each morning and evening. These Midrashic images amplify the biblical text, which talks at length about Pharaoh's attempts to kill Jewish children, but they are not here just to vilify Pharaoh. They come to expose the inner workings of his regime. Some acts of hatred are unitarian. One feels threatened and therefore needs to fight an enemy. But other times, hatred stands at the very foundation of a society. The historian Saul Friedlander coined the term redemptive anti-Semitism to describe the Nazi hatred of Jews. The Nazis saw Jews as a virus that weakens and undetermines, undermines humanity. The destruction of the Jews would bring goodness to the rest of the world. These Midrashim are articulating something similar. In one, the murder of Jewish children is seen as therapeutic, a way for Pharaoh to recover his health. In the other, dead Jews are the foundation of Egyptian development. For Pharaoh, killing is no longer the means of maintaining power, but the very purpose of power itself. Violence against Jews is the scaffolding that holds his regime together. 
Unfortunately, these midrashim are prescient, offering a clear description of Hamas. There are no limits to Hamas's 100-year war. It engaged in a premeditated mass murder in the most horrible, depraved fashion, all proudly recorded by terrorists on their body cameras. Even more shocking is Hamas's overt attempt for the very people they claim to represent. Palestinians were Hamas's first victims, and as this autocratic regime has regularly murdered its op opponents. Today, Palestinians are enduring great suffering because Hamas cynically uses civilians as human shields and calculates the strategic value of their deaths. Hamas will have the Palestinians fight to the death in Gaza when many of its leaders sit comfortably in Doha. Supporters of Israel are sometimes reluctant to speak about the tragedy of Palestinian civilians because it has been weaponized by Hamas and its enablers. As I write these words, the International Court of Justice is presiding over a South African claim that Israel is engaged in genocide. But even so, we must mourn for the deaths of those caught in the crossfire. Every human being is created in the image of God. Hamas has built its regime with the blood of both Palestinians and Israelis. Its great construction project, the Gaza Tunnels, is built for death and by death. Hamas's wanton violence may shock us, but the Midrash predicted this type of hatred hundreds of years ago. Like Moses, we are anguished over the innocent babies who are massacred and mourn for those who are brutally murdered. Israel has had to send its best and brightest out to take up the fight, and too many of them have fallen in battle. For all of these tragedies, we cry. Every death is a profound loss. But the death of a young person is all the more painful because it is so unexpected. In the ordinary way of the world, children bury their parents, not the other way around. My father died in a car accident, predeceasing my grandmother by nearly 40 years. My grandfather was a jovial man who always had a smile on his face. That is, except when he spoke about my father. Then the smile left his face. Even decades later, the grief would quickly return. No suffering is greater than that of losing a child. A Hebrew expression which is first found in Isaiah 38.10 best describes a young death, Nektav Bemi Hayav, cut off the middle of their days. It emphasizes that a young death is actually a double tragedy. One loses not just the person, but also what the person could have been. Even of each of these deaths is painful for our entire community. News reports out of Israel recount the entire biography for those of those who have died. The entire Jewish world repeats their names and their stories, and inevitably we find that we are one or two degrees of separation from these tragedies. Hamas sees our responses as a weakness. Haya Sinwar sees the Israeli concern for each hostage and each soldier to be a weakness. He considers his ability to write off the lives of thousands of Palestinians to be a strength. He ridicules Israel's willingness to call a ceasefire in order to release a handful of hostages. Like Pharaoh, Sinwar is ready to build pyramids with the bodies of babies. Sinwar is correct that, brutally hold, that brutality holds strength and strategic value. Ignoring the suffering of one's own people means that one can fight on without any limitations, but is morally untenable. Moses cries for the babies Pharaoh uh, murder, was murdering, and we must follow his example. Even if it seems foolish, we must advocate for each hostage and cry for every soldier. We must never forget them, and we must challenge God to remember them and put an end to the suffering now. 
That was We Must Never Forget Them by Rabbi Chaim Steinmetz from the My Turn section. Rabbi Chaim Steinmetz is the senior rabbi of Congregation Kihalaf Jishron in New York. We conclude with this uh, article from the My Turn section, The Conductor Behind the Names by Ariella Tannenbaum. I refresh my screen throughout the day waiting to see the names to see if any new names have been cleared for publication. I am struck by the names of the fallen soldiers. I can't put myself in their parents' shoes on the day of their loss, but I imagine being in their shoes on the day they choose the name. I think of the wishes and blessings that they infused into the name while looking at their precious and perfect newborn baby. These babies were not brought into the world on a mission of holy war or on a mission for revenge. They were brought into this world to make it better, to shed light, to spread faith. Ra, my shepherd, the pointed reference to God's hand, leading to our every movement and showing us the way to a better life. Maur Mayer, a light, shalev, serene, malachi, angelic, shalom, peace, netanel, given by God, a name I lovingly gave to my own child, Shai, a gift, Yosef. Yosef in the Torah, who overcame such immense struggles in his life and never lost faith and never lost sight of the bigger picture. Shlomo, King Solomon, whose timeless words of wisdom are as applicable today as they were the day they were written. Daniel, spared in the lion's den for doing what he knew to be right. The list goes on and on. Name after name, each on a, one a, a window in, into the hopes that, that were held for every child. Each name, a reminder of yet another void being left in this world. Parents, friends, spouses, children who will forever mourn the ones they've lost. We are a people of life. We do not support martyrdom. Needlessly endangering a life is considered a serious sin. Saving a life is the paramount act, one that supersedes everything else. Seeing the death toll slowly climb is not just watching a number grow. Because we are a people of life, every loss of life hurts. It is a physical and emotional pain that the whole nation feels. How can we come to terms with the losses, the sacrifices, so many lives cut short and dreams still unachieved? While reciting to He Lim Psalms recently, I was suddenly struck by one of the most common opening words, Lamnatsak. Over one-third of the chapters of Tehillim start with it, but I had never stopped to really acknowledge it. My initial thought was of victory, Nitzhan, to the victor or to he who makes victorious. To make something Nitzhak is to make it eternal, everlasting, forever. I then came across a meaning that really illuminated the Psalms for me and enabled me to reframe my prayers. A menatsak is a conductor and an of or orchestra. The conductor knows the value of every individual's role. The conductor directs all of the moving parts that, when combined, can create absolute harmony and beauty. The conductor does not hear what we hear. He hears the biggest symphony that we cannot comprehend. When we lose track of the conductor, we get brought down by our cacophonous surroundings. We can't understand why God takes back the souls of all the fallen soldiers when he does. We can't understand all the hatred and confusion in the world. There is so much that we don't know. All we do is apply ourselves to play our instrument as best as we can and trust that the conductor will piece everything else together. That was The Conductor Behind the Names by Ariella Tenenbaum from the My Turns section. Uh, Ariella Tenenbaum was born and raised in Venice, California. She now lives in Jerusalem with her husband and children. All right, let's uh, start reading some ads from this Jewish journal. 
uh, January 19th through the 25th, 2024. Here's one. When it turns out to be MBC, turn to Charcheret, Support Education Resor and Resources. Living metastatic breast cancer is challenging on so many levels. Charcheret is here for you with compassionate emotional support, educational materials, and connections to key lifestyle and medical resources. We are a nonprofit supporting Jewish women and families at high risk for or diagnosed with cancer. Turn to Sharashit for support and hope. To learn more about Sharashit resources, visit sharashit.org slash mbc or scan the QR code. Sharashit, the Jewish breast and ovarian cancer community. This campaign is supported by Gilead and Oncology. Here's one. Uh, Hillside Mortuary, providing compassionate and professional mortuary services for families of all faiths. Hillside is built upon a foundation of relationships, enabling us to assist in coordinating and expediting arrangements. Website is www.hillsidememorial.org slash advanced planning. For more information about our online floral service, please visit www.hillsidememorial.org slash floral service. Hillside Memorial Park and Mortuary, Los Angeles FD number 1358. Here's one. Keep up with what's happening in town. JewishJournal.com slash calendar. And here's one. Advertise your product or service here in the Jewish market, mark, the Jewish Journal Marketplace. Here we go. Each new day, a new adventure. Your next adventure begins here. Our senior living communities are designed and curated for unique adventures, endless opportunities, and vivid experiences. Take the first step in imagining everything your next chapter can hold. The Village at Northridge. Phone is 818-659-5593. Website is thevillageatnorthridge.com. And this is The Village at Sherman Oaks. Phone is 818-245-5832. Website is ShermanOaksSeniorLiving.com. An SRG Senior Living Community. RCFE number 1976086694. And also RFC, RCFE number 1976088838. Here's one. AKLA. Emboldened and Inspired Jewish Identity. Introducing exciting and inspiring ways for 12 to 14-year-olds to find leadership opportunities and connections to the greater Los Angeles Jewish community. This program highlights the cutting-edge achievements in Israel and foster pride in our homeland. To learn more information and apply, visit www.aklausa.org. Here's this one. Vista Autism Center, where healing begins a groundbreaking new approach for children with autism and their families. In Israel, experts have spent decades developing a different approach to promoting the mental and social development of children on the autism spectrum uh, with results that have garnered worldwide attention. Building on a psychoanalytic model originally developed in England, internationally renowned child and adult psychoanalyst Joshua Durbin, who has been at the forefront of this successful model, is bringing this approach to the U.S., And it's all happening at Vista. There is no cure for autism, nor does there need to be. From Mozart to Oppenheimer, history is replete with neurodiverse individuals 
uh, among our most prominent artists and intellectuals. Rather than changing the child, Durban's groundbreaking approach helps them realize their full potential and thrive within their families, communities, and society. If you would like more information or to schedule an interview, visit us at www.vistaautismcenter.org or contact Joshua Durbin at joshuadurbin at vistadelmar.org. We are putting the child at the center. And folks, that looks like that will do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.